2: I'm Charles Pryor and you're listening to New Books in British History, a channel on the New Books Network. As they explored and struggled to establish settlements in what they called newfound lands, the encounter with the peoples of those lands deeply affected how the British saw themselves. From the onset of colonization, exotic visitors appeared in London. We recognized their names, Pocahontas, Manteo, Squanto. If you look carefully, they're a constant presence. In the decorative cartouches of 17th and 18th century maps, in the illustrated title pages of texts promoting colonization and present though heavily filtered through the assumptions of British culture in many other texts, poems, plays, treatises on political theory and philosophy, and in novels. Novels were a form in the 18th century that was new and they confronted a world that was ancient. The intensity of this cultural encounter, which is all too familiar to those who work on the history of colonial and federal America, has been overlooked in some circles of British studies. The multi-volume Oxford History of the British Empire, for example, devoted just two of 47 essays to the topic of Native Americans. While treatments of British imperial culture do not place enough emphasis on how diplomatic military commercial relationships with the Algonquian, Cherokee, and Haudenosaunee peoples shape broader views of the nature and purposes of the imperial project. Robbie Richardson is a lecturer in 18th-century literature at the University of Kent. In The Savage and Modern Self, North American Indians in 18th-century British Literature and Culture, he examines the cultural presence of Indians in the novels, poetry, plays, and material culture of the 18th century. This presence was used as a kind of mirror or reflection to grapple with the emergence of consumer culture, the meaning of colonialism, Britishness and one of the preoccupations of 18th century social theorists, the nature of the modern self. Robbie Richardson joins me from London. Robbie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: So this is your first book, so congratulations. Um, Can you tell me something about what led you to this project and how it developed from your PhD thesis into the finished book?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean... It, as you say, it started as a PhD thesis, and I suppose what I was trying to do was address what I saw as a scholarly gap in um, covering a lot of the material that I'm that I'm writing about. So uh, there hasn't been a book specifically about the figure of the Indian in eighteenth-century British literary texts proper uh, since the nineteen twenties. And this kind of surprised me. Uh, of course, outside of British studies, there's early American studies that has a more kind of robust engagement with uh, indigeneity and that kind of thing. But, um, but in British studies, there just wasn't such a thing. So I, I initially set myself the task, I suppose, somewhat ambitiously and maybe crudely phrased, but to sort of do a version of Orientalism, but about Native people. Orientalism
2: by sorry orientalism by edward Said.
1: yes exactly sorry yeah um, um which which you know looks at uh the ways that the east is sort of figured as this contrasting experience to the west uh, and i wanted to figure out how it was that uh representations of native people fit into such a similar or indeed different discourse um and so yeah and during the process of writing the the final book, um, it so happened that I, who uh, am a Mi'kmaq person, moved to the UK. And of course, in some ways, this uh, sort of shaped um, my my interest in really kind of figuring out what the figure of the, we'll say, quote unquote, Indian, sort of imagining that as a uh, uh, you know we're just sort of using the terminology of the time I suppose but uh the ways that the figure the Indian uh figured here in Britain and not just in the North American context.
2: So you you mentioned you 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 you've flagged up your, your identity as a, a Mi'kmaq. I mean is, does that play any role uh, in in what you're studying? Is this a sort of uh, are you interested in discovering uh, more about uh, your own cultural roots and their place within uh, a culture that uh, whose language you speak, whose traditions you partly operate in, and so on?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, we used to have a joke in graduate school that you could psychoanalyze someone based on their PhD topic, and uh, I suppose uh, maybe there is some of that uh, in me. And increasingly, yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I think the kind of the next stage of where I'm, you know, sort of going is looking at some of the more specificities, uh, to the period. And certainly, um, the ways that Mi'kmaq people, uh, sort of participated in this transatlantic culture is is certainly interesting to me, although I don't really get to that aspect in, in the book itself.
2: Okay, so I mentioned in the introduction that uh, Native Americans had been present uh, in Britain for a long time, and I, I just called them Native Americans. They could be called, if uh, we're coming from our own context or my my own context, Canada First Nations people. They're called Indians. Uh, we have to we have to note the. the the slipperiness of the terms, Uh, but they've been present in Britain for a long time. I wonder if you could talk us through some of the early examples of this presence and and where they crop up in the literature of the time.
1: Well, um, I mean, prior to the period that I'm looking at, uh, there were sort of, I guess you would say, fleeting or fugitive representations of indigenous people. They, They kind of, they flare up, but then disappear, I suppose. Uh, certainly, the, I mean, the earliest come about sort of 1500, 1501. Uh, there's a mention of Indians in London. Um, and mm-hmm. then they sort of disappear from the historical record. Uh, these early encounters are often very fraught and uh, typically um, end rather unhappily. So, you know, famously, uh, Martin Frobisher, the the explorer, brought back several Inuit people to uh, Bristol, I believe initially, Uh, in the in the 1570s, uh, all of them subsequently died. Uh, There's a mention of several indigenous people in London, in the sort of the early 17th century, um, who sailed around the Thames in a canoe and hunted deer for the for the monarch. Uh, They presumably died of plague. So uh, in fact, these these encounters, though fugitive, as I said, were persistent enough that Shakespeare actually mentions it in The Tempest, uh, where he he suggests that people will will pay money to see dead Indians. Um, but in my period, uh, again, this sort of this 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 history, uh, it magnifies as you get towards the end of the 17th century, because There's obviously increasing involvement in the colonies. And so as a result, you have indigenous people coming over that are not just being kidnapped, being captured, being brought over as curiosities, but actually they start to become historical actors. And I mean, the most significant one um, in my book and in the 18th century overall uh, is in 1710, when four representatives of the Iroquois Confederacy came to meet with Queen Anne. Um, and they were painted by the court painter. Uh, they were brought around to shows. Um, they, they were sort of made a spectacle of in public. And it so happened that that time when they came was when um, the, the sort of public sphere was really exploding. So there's this massive increase in print culture, in visual culture, um, in museum culture. So they brought objects that would be then displayed in the British Museum, which would be founded a short time later. And and these four men really kind of loom large in the 18th century. And in many senses, a lot of the subsequent visits uh, by indigenous nations kind of in the British mind followed that same sort of mold. Um, and so, again, it's this movement from total curiosity to Indian king, so a possible uh, kind of sovereign other. So there's a, in some ways there's a kind of nation to nation relationship that's implicit in that. You know, deeply problematic, of course, Um, but it is uh, it it is very kind of distinct and new in the 18th century as compared to these earlier earlier examples. And and of course, um, you know, you have other ways that this this presence is being dispersed, and things like tobacco, which was massively popular um, in in the UK and was learned how to be sort of consumed when Walter Raleigh met uh, people in Virginia, so you know as a sort of cultural practice that that is also another kind of example of the presence
2: so the the diplomatic visits are famous examples and and the book is is illustrated with uh, woodcuts of some of those portraits and and contemporary accounts of the visits uh but those as you say were sort of spectacles uh almost for sometimes confined to the aristocracy but you write in the in the book uh that a lot of the uh, some if not all or many of, of the authors uh never crossed the Atlantic, uh, you say, and or met uh, an Indian in person. Um, and in that case, uh, where did their ideas of Native Americans, Indians, let's call them the indigenous peoples of the Americas, where did those ideas come from?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable when you read newspapers um, of the 18th century, and indeed of the late 17th century, almost every week there is some paragraph on foreign affairs and within that very frequently um, it involves things that are happening with the so-called indians often uh they're not very positive things it's often saying that they many were slaughtered or did slaughtering so it's, it's, it's often very embedded with a, a deep kind of violence um but newspapers certainly uh were a big part in 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 the dispersal of this kind of information. Within that, of course, uh, in the 18th century, we have this emergence of, uh, of what's been called the public sphere, this kind of the sharing of all these ideas. And so people would not only read newspapers, but they would gather in coffee houses and talk about them. And they would talk about foreign affairs. And they would talk about their favorite indigenous nations, things like that. Uh, so this very much was a way of of dispersing this information beyond the kind of elite sphere and into the sort of emerging middle classes. Um, And again, with as with the Indian kings, you did have these sorts of public spectacles, where all sorts of classes would would follow around uh, the Indians as they would go watch a play, or as they would, you know, go to the museum and see their material culture. And in some ways, this sort of this dispersal of information about, about Indians, that it's been described as the sort of general storehouse of Indian knowledge, uh, is itself one of the sort of implications of modernity. You know, so modernity sort of allows this dispersal of the savage, if you will. Um, and, and in some ways, this, this discourse, it, it doesn't even really need Indians. You know, it's kind of a self-validating presence in the country, uh, and so they don't even need to encounter actual people, but rather it's it's this sort of discourse of knowledge.
2: So, the the book, I mean, the, I want to turn to the title, uh, "The Savage and Modern Self." I mean, in some ways, it's sort of a, a provocative title, um, a thought provoking title. Um, I wonder if you could uh, talk about uh, these. These you've mentioned modernity a little bit, but. Uh, and you've mentioned savagery. I wonder if you could talk about um, how you see, how you use these two concepts um, and and how they how they function in the book.
1: Mm. Well, uh, one of the sort of key concepts in in I suppose eighteenth century studies is this idea of modernity, and uh, I mean, funny enough, often many other people that study their own historical period sort of lay claim to it being the birth of modernity. Uh, but in my view, as an 18th centuryist, of course, uh, I see it very much it feels, emerging. Yeah. Sure. Sorry.
2: Yes. It's your, it's modernity happens in the 18th century. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I guess what I, what I mean by modernity in this context, uh, I mean, there's of course, modern things happening like say for example capitalism or industrialization um, these kinds of things we could describe as i guess modernizing forces but i think more simply i guess what i really mean by uh the modern and by modernity in this period is this notion that we have entered a new era and things now are effectively different than they've ever been before and i think this is a Pretty unique idea uh, in the eighteenth century again born about in part through the public sphere and through these other kinds of things but and and certainly through empire, I think uh, really very much enforced this idea of that the British were modern, and the sort of contrasting experience to the modern at least that was my initial thought in going into this book uh, was the savage and the savage is that which is not modern the savage is this kind of unevolving sense of uh this sort of historical presentism it doesn't really have a past or a future um, and it doesn't have the sort of trappings of modernity it doesn't have the comforts of modernity um but i guess what i kind of figured out in in looking at this book is that while initially the savage is kind of constructed as this otherness to modernity what curiously happens is that this savage idea becomes actually what modernity has lost and it kind of becomes this figure of desire and in some ways the only way to sort of truly be modern is to embrace the savage or at least to embrace aspects of it and you see this in uh in Adam Smith who we could say is you know kind of one of the founders of of what we would call modernity in in writing about modern capitalism and in writing about sort of sympathetic identification with people in society and you know Smith was really fascinated with with the savage and with what what we could learn from from their sort of being and how we could then I say we, of course, meaning him, his we, <laughs> mm. but uh, uh, how that could be sort of written into uh, to, to the, the this, you know so-called modern self, I suppose. One of the other, I guess, key distinctions of what marks modernity in the 18th century uh, is this notion of progress. And of course, mm. embedded in that idea of progress is this move from a kind of savage uncivilized state to a sort of perfected civilized state so you know the, the in that spectrum uh you know the savage is the sort of the past of the modern but again as i have discovered it's not just the sort of disavowed past but actually a kind of melancholy past a kind of past that you know some ways the british want to get back to or at least uh get back the aspects of that that they've lost because of being too civilized
2: so it's a it's a reaction to uh, the internal pressures that empire produces, the the pressures of commerce, uh, commodification, uh, and there's a lot of uh, fretting, isn't there, in the 18th century about uh, whether empire is is robbing the British of their essence, and whether, you know, looking at people like the Romans who who gorge themselves on the exotic luxuries of the East, um, whether the British were going to uh, to to meet the same fate. There is is that one of the sort of the impulses there?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's this there's this kind of constant fear um and again this is to use the 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 language of the time, but this constant fear of uh of becoming effeminate. So this this notion that through consumption uh the British ideal i.e. male subject is uh, is losing the sense of masculinity because they live basically too easy of a life because they consume all these goods of empire. And, uh, you know, in other contexts, it's interesting, um, how these anxieties are then propelled onto the subjects that they're trying to colonize. So you see how, uh, for example, often South Asian people are, are represented as rather effeminate, whereas the Indian is the, you know, the North American Indian is sort of represented as very masculine. And both these are kind of two different spectrums of of some of the anxieties of empire.
2: Yeah, that's the, you set up the next question beautifully. I mean, uh, in imperial writing, peoples from the various precincts of empire, the various flanks, East, West, African, Caribbean, uh, appear uh, in the literature and and discourse of of London. Uh, But you, you show that uh, uh, indigenous Americans emerge as a very distinct people among those other imperial peoples. I mean what is the could you say more about the the distinction that they that they have and and how does then that function in in the literature that you 're looking at
1: yeah well it's it's it 's really um interesting when you look at a lot of um, early modern representations, so sort of like you know sixteenth and seventeenth century representations of non European people. There's a real kind of lack of specificity. And so uh, the word Indian, it's often completely unclear which type of Indian is being evoked. Uh, there's this kind of generalized, uh I, I think I described a sort of generalized rubric of otherness. But then uh, again, with sort of increased colonial contact in the colonies, uh increased political and uh commercial interests. You have this more clear, uh, more clear I- uh, idea or more clear subject that's produced. Um, a lot of this comes about in part through, um, for example, museum catalogs would describe um, some of the indigenous objects that were coming over, and they started to use uh, indigenous words, so like words like wampum, tomahawk, uh, expressions such as burying the hatchet. So on the level of language, there's, there, starts, there starts to be a kind of specificity to, to what, you know, an, an, an Indian is. Um, and the other kind of part that really, um, that was quite key to this is, uh, is religious networks and missionary efforts. So their, their kind of, their attempt to, you know, civilize the savage, as it were, uh, in many ways created this idea of the savage that then, Uh, Well, you know, that's the missionizing thing is another topic altogether, but, but that's another part of how, uh, how this idea became more, more specific, the idea of the Indian.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
2: in the i mean one of the the central themes of the book i guess the 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 I, the, the, the tension or the the dialectic if you like uh, between the savage and the modern is um uh, cultural encounters, and, and in the second chapter, you move on to cultural encounters, and you talk about how, in the 18th century, identity was very fluid and, and changeable, and you provide some historical examples. Uh, a very prominent one is Sir William Johnson, who is the one of the Crown's officials for Indian affairs, based in, in what is now New York and johnson absorbs uh many elements of mohawk culture he dresses he marries he adopts he moves into the kinship networks um how did uh people move between um identities uh and how is this reflected in the material that you've read
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i mean william johnson is such a such an interesting figure isn't he i mean he uh he really did uh, i mean he was fully Uh, adopted into Mohawk society, given a Mohawk name, all these kinds of things. But I think one of the, I guess, key distinctions I'd like to mark is that, you know, you had people like William Johnson in the colonies who were effectively going native, so to speak. Mm. But then the ways that that was picked up and represented in Britain was, was quite different. So in some ways, like his story couldn't really be told in England at that time. It couldn't really be fully understood, uh, which is one of the things I kind of talk about in the book. Um, but I guess that the broader context that, that I'd also like to, to draw attention to is that, as you said, this notion of a sort of fluid identity is quite, I mean, it's debatable, I suppose, in some ways, but you know, it's often pointed out that in the 18th century, ideas... Uh, such as race, for example, didn't have the same kind of purchase that they would have in the nineteenth century. So there is much more of uh, an attention to sort of external characteristics as being fluid and, and and changeable. This idea that you know your race was determined simply just by the climate, and if you moved to that place, that you could effectively become that race. You know, these are ideas that were kind of circulating around uh, in the eighteenth century, and certainly. Um, race as a sort of stable, uh, obviously created category didn't really come about until kind of the end of the 18th century. And so prior to that time, it's a lot, it's the things are a lot more, uh, fluid, a lot more kind of messy, I suppose. And, uh, so, but then curiously, as I say, with, with people like Johnson, they are, they are very much, Going through this sort of cultural change, but in Britain, he was kind of mocked for it. He was made like this. He was sort of represented as this kind of like salacious, power-hungry, uh, polygamous, um, suspect character for that reason for for his for his attempts to to sort of go native. In other ways, he was greatly admired, but those at that aspect of his identity. Um, As in uh, the novel uh, *Crystal*, which I talk about in in the book, um, you know, he's he's sort of seen as this kind of licentious, kind of gross character.
2: Someone who who is what like a Colonel Kurtz figure who goes up the river and and uh, is fundamentally changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So.
2: A lot of, the, I mean, the well-known texts. I, I think a, a lot of people will, will have heard of these are the are captivity narratives. The uh, the narrative of Mary Rowlandson's captivity in the late 17th century was a, a runaway bestseller, and it it kicks off a genre that lasts all the way through uh, the 18th century. Uh, and you deal with captivity narratives, but you want to. Uh, you want to change tack uh, from the way that people have talked about them and you want to place them in uh, the broader context of the conquest and, and colonization of, of, of North America. And, and the word conquest uh, in North Amer- of North America is not something that we hear uh, a lot about. Um, what is the place of captivity narratives in this notion of conquest and colonization? How do they fit together?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess when I'm talking about captivity narratives, I'm I'm sort of in the North American context, I'm talking about two different historical moments of captivity narratives being popular. Um, the first of course, are the very famous Puritan narratives, Mary Rowlandson's being the most kind of Mm -hmm. well-known certainly one of the most taught, uh, texts in America still, uh, in university courses. And, um, so you have these sort of early Puritan narratives that emerged kind of in sort of these intractable conflicts in New England. These are mostly produced in North America um, and, frankly, don't really have much of an impact in Britain. Uh, Mary Rowlandson's text was printed in Britain shortly after its appearance, but then not again until the 19th century. So it didn't have that same kind of... Um, kind of impact. And then the second uh, sort of site of of captivity is uh, these narratives that emerge in the 1760s. And these narratives have almost never been studied, because frankly, when you read them, they are typically not very well written, but also are incredibly violent. And I suppose I would say kind of pathologically racist uh, in their their representation of indigenous people. But these are the texts that I was most interested in because nobody really talks about them. And they're seen as this kind of um, sort of degenerate form of these earlier Puritan narratives such as Rowlandson's, which are often seen as heralding the birth of this kind of uniquely American uh, experience. And I had a lot of Trouble with this idea that these Puritan texts um, are the beginning of some kind of beautiful cultural expression when they too are deeply fraught and 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 deeply uh, violent and that kind of thing, and so by drawing attention to the later narratives, I wanted to show how um, how captivity isn't necessarily something to be celebrated and certainly is not something that is this kind of uniquely American experience. In fact, the captivity genre was global. You know, you have these Barbary captivity narratives, you have these other things. So it's, it's kind of part of a broader way that, uh, that, I guess you could say it, I think Linda Colley describes captivity as a form rather than as a genre. And it's, it's a kind of way that Britain's Experience otherness and negotiate otherness, if that makes sense. And right. so, and so, one of the the things I wanted to draw attention to in these later narratives, these sort of so called um, propagandist narratives, was actually their sort of deep ambivalence about how Britain was encountering otherness, and they're not really um, these sort of celebrations of the Puritan in the wilderness, but actually they show the, the deep damage that colonialism does not only to those being colonized, but indeed to the colonizers themselves. And, uh, so, you know, these narratives are filled with these kind of incredible scenes of violence, you know, people being buried up to their neck, uh, with fires lit beside their heads until their brains boil out of their eyes literally happens in one of the narratives. Uh, pretty grisly stuff. Um, but, you know, to me, when I read them, it's not just saying, look at how horrible and brutal and savage these Indians are, but rather, you know, look what this is sort of doing to us. And certainly a lot of the narratives end with these former captives themselves scalping people. So it's it's this kind of this economy, I guess, this economy of violence that that these, these narratives uh, sort of bring out and draw attention to the real impact of what violent colonization is.
2: So to this day, uh, readers of the Declaration of Independence uh, may not notice, maybe they do, maybe they don't, uh, the line that refers to the merciless Indian savages whose only known rule of warfare is the destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions, this is this, this is wording that's applied to uh, Native American modes of warfare right back to the 17th century, but those they, those words are in the Declaration for a reason, and they capture a growing sense of Native Americans as enemies as opposed to diplomatic visitors as they are in the early 18th century. How does that shift in perception get worked out uh, from Indians as as Kings from other cultures to savages with no culture. How does that shift get worked out in literary texts, and how do these texts uh, reflect the historical background of Britain's imperial crisis uh, that's looming towards independence? I realize that's a lot in that question, but I was wondering if you could unpick some of that.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a strange thing in again in in the British context where. There's obviously in the 1770s, there's this massive proliferation of texts about, um, well, I should say more so newspaper accounts, kind of, quote unquote, I guess, factual accounts, Um, a massive proliferation of them in which we do see these sorts of the inhuman barbarity of, of unleashing savages against our fellow people. This is the kind of discourse that's happening. So, you know, there's this famous speech in Parliament that Edmund Burke gave where he talks about how when us, i.e. the British, ally ourselves with Indians against the colonists, we're effectively committing murder and we're, we're no longer able to lay claim to being called a civilized people by using these horrible savages against our own people. So the figure of the Indian is kind of seen as in that context, as being representative of, of the deep immorality of, of the, the, the American war revolutionary war in, in the eyes of people like Burke, uh, who was a Tory, but, or, well, complicatedly. So I suppose, right. (laughs) But, uh, but, but the curiously, During the same time in in British literary texts, you start to see this kind of sentimentalization of the Indian. So even, even at the time, the height of conflict, 1776, and at this time when people like Burke and others are saying, you know, how can we be employing savages against our brethren? You see these texts where, you know, there's sort of these romanticized wise old indigenous elders who kind of adopt white people into their tribes and teach them the sort of lessons of, of how to be brave um, while also being uh, sort of sentimental. So it's a curious contradiction between those two. And and it's, it's, I I mean, a person who embodies that perfectly, I suppose, is Joseph Brandt, Mm. who, you know, the Mohawk leader, Um, who at the time was thought of actually to be descended from one of the four Indian Kings uh, whose name was Brant. I think it's kind of turned out that I don't know if he was actually biologically related to them, but they certainly thought he was the grandson of, of, of of one of them. But, you know, when Brant is in the colonies, the way American colonists write about him is, you know, this, this sort of the savage Brant, the killer Brant, because he was allied with the British, but he goes over to London in 1776. And he's treated with incredible respect he He hangs out with uh, with Boswell, who's kind of fascinated with him. He, he goes to a masquerade uh, where people think that he's just dressed up as an Indian and isn't actually an Indian. Um, but he's very much kind of celebrated. his portraits are painted and these kinds of things. So you see this real uh, this real divide between the colonial experience and the British experience, and that kind of only increased especially following uh, the revolutionary war when the romantic writers would pick up the figure of the Indian. So people like, you know, Wordsworth and, and others would, would, would very much talk about the Indian as this kind of tragically beautiful character who's so brave and yet doomed to extinction effectively. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so it's kind of, it's, it's, it's worked out in a very complex way in which, the newspaper accounts don't directly feed into the fictional imagination, which is quite curious.
2: The, you, you mentioned, uh, Brandt and Brandt's portrait, um, which, uh, anybody listening can, can find online. It's, it's quite spectacular by George Romney. Uh, the collections of British museums and art galleries, um, are filled, um, with uh, indigenous American objects. Um, sometimes displayed uh not very sympathetically or properly uh and they're also filled with portraits of British colonial officials in native dress um holding tomahawks uh wearing moccasins and leggings what uh what significance did these objects and depictions have and how how were they used
1: yeah um yeah the the it's it's quite fascinating to look at um, the material record because, for me, I suppose looking at uh, material culture initially was a way in which to kind of find a sort of indigenous agency. You know, it's a kind of uh, a kind of way in which we can say, "Oh, this object was made by a native person. What does it mean? How is it circulated?" and all that kinds of things. Um, but in the eighteenth century, initially these objects, ostensibly at least, were sort of used to enforce this idea of savage warfare. So, you know, the, the tomahawk and the scalping knife, uh, especially in the 1770s, became shorthand for basically just merciless barbarity, for, for you know, the kinds of war practices that had to be disavowed by Europe, you know, guerrilla warfare, uh, torture... Uh, these kinds of things. And so in displaying these items, uh, you know, you you sort of enforce this notion of these cultural practices embedded in them. And when you have these, uh, so, you know, there's a few famous portraits of European men dressed up in these objects. So, you know, John Caldwell is a, is a famous one that uh, that people can look up. Peter Williamson is, is another one who I talk about quite extensively um, in the book. And, these these men i would suggest are in part trying to kind of appropriate this this notion of of kind of fierceness and and savagery again but uh in a way that they can kind of temper that they can kind of absorb elements of that and show their mastery over that but um curiously i guess uh what what i found that was incredibly fascinating is that these objects, these tomahawks and scalping knives, especially by the 1760s and 1770s were entirely of European manufacture. So, you know, they were made in places like Sheffield in Birmingham, uh, as well as in forges in North America. And indeed you can still see these objects in museums in in London, in Liverpool. And, you know, you'll see, you have these examples of tomahawks, but you look and they actually have the markings of a British cutler, of a British steelmaker on them. And the same as scalping knives. In fact, even more so with scalping knives, which are almost entirely made in Sheffield. So, you know, curiously, it's, 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 it's an incredible process to think that in the 1750s and 1760s, you had somebody like William Johnson who's ordering tomahawks from Sheffield to be shipped to North America so that they can be traded to the Indians and then within a decade these same objects are being brought back to Britain as examples of savage warfare of savage artifacts and they're all, and they're displayed in museum collections uh, you know in paintings and and yet it's almost they've, they've completely effaced the fact that they were initially made in Britain so they've been re-inscribed as these kinds of savage objects. so i i thought that um in kind of ending my book and talking about material culture i it, it's kind of a beautiful and perfect metaphor for the production of savagery itself you know it's the british themselves that have produced these items and kind of forgotten it and rewritten them as something else and and, and additionally just to say too that the the, the steel industry in 18th century Britain was kind of the ultimate example of modernity. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were shipping in raw materials from Baltic States uh, to produce steel of the highest quality and then to be shipped elsewhere. So, you know, it was this, this very um, early example of a sort of powerful transnational capitalism. Um, And yet again, these objects are brought back as these kind of uh, singular items of, of, North American indigenous warfare.
2: In the closing pages of the book, um, you take up the question of how all of the uh, very rich discussion of of cultural fluidity, cultural appropriation, identity, um, how all of this affects indigenous communities in North America in the present day. Um, And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what your hopes are for this book in terms of what it can achieve in coming to grips with the continuing presence of colonialism or the continuing operation, more clearly, of settler colonialism. And uh, what do you think people need to learn about that presence in Britain today? Mm.
1: Well, um, I mean, I guess I kind of set a few tasks for myself in, 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 writing the book and what and how I hope it's understood is to understand, I guess, the, the entangled nature of modernity and to understand the sort of negative and exclusionary effects, uh, of it on, on indigenous people. Um, but also to sort of, to contest its, its narrative authority, um, particularly in this kind of current cultural moment of, of uh, the sort of rise and the defense of these sort of supposedly pure European traditions, um, very much invested in in um, in showing how these these don't emerge out of the sort of vacuum of beautiful European culture, but actually come from much messier, complicated, and often ugly spaces. Um, and I mean, additionally, as I mentioned in, in moving uh, to this country. Uh, I'm really invested and interested in giving greater attention to this indigenous presence in Britain. Um, you know, and obviously in, in Canada, there's this kind of moment right now, which is quite, I think quite encouraging, uh, although, you know, with setbacks, but there's, there seems to be a broader cultural interest in reconciliation with indigenous people. And um, I think that that is a very important process, but I think that it's one that also needs to occur here, obviously, albeit in a a different way. Um, But I think that that British people need to understand the ways that they are uh, kind of implicated in what has happened in Canada. And, uh, you know, for me, the, the, the sort of the turning to material culture, not just, you know, Tom Hawks and Scalping knives, but also the other things that appear in British museums is kind of a good site um, in which uh, you know people can kind of go and and sort of understand the 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 fraught histories of these objects and how they kind of got there as as a sort of um, as a beginning to understand this. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that it's it's often understood that it is just the sort of settlers, colonials themselves, that benefited from colonization and that did the 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 dirty work as it were but i want to sort of draw attention to how that wasn't the case and how these these processes were very much uh, a part of of life in the uk as well
2: Yes, this is a story uh, of the empire that that deserves to be retold. I've been talking to Robbie Richardson, author of The Savage and Modern Self, a book that is going to make uh, tremendous strides in in framing that story and telling that story. And I, I hope the book is a great success. Thanks, Robbie, for
1: doing this. Thanks again for having me.